You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Andrew is right. Um, I always begin my talks the same way, if only to remind me what's most important in life. If you would pray, please, with me. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would be moved to love and serve Jesus today. Amen. The title of my talk is Thomas Cramner's Theological Vision for Anglican Liturgical Revision. And I have had a great deal of um, joy in preparing it. It has turned out to be uh, uh, for lack of better words, uh, the greatest hits of my last 30 years of Cramner research. So if you want to know um, where the, the current state of studies are, please pay attention because you're going to get it in 30 minutes or less, so fasten your seatbelts. As the Episcopal Church continues to approach the daunting task of liturgical revision, it would be good to revisit the theological vision that birthed our prayer book tradition as a distinctive branch of Christian worship. While Thomas Cramner insisted that Anglican liturgy must be regularly renewed so as always to speak to contemporary society, he was equally adamant that the gospel message itself transcended any specific cultural moment remaining consistent through the many centuries after Jesus' initial proclamation of it in Roman-occupied Palestine. Hence, Cramner believed liturgical revisers such as himself had much to learn from how previous generations used worship to proclaim the mission of the church to the people of their day. Hold that thought. What's the purpose of liturgical revision? To proclaim the mission of the church to the people of our day. As we continue to adapt Cramner's handiwork to contemporary needs, we would be well advised to follow his example in learning from the past to better lead the present into the future. The heart of Tudor Protestantism was not right doctrine, but right desire. Now that's going to sound radical. But think about it. Undoubtedly, Thomas Cramner and his fellow English reformers thought the two were closely connected. Truth about God would draw humanity homewards. Right desire could only be formed by right knowledge of both God and fallen human nature. Nevertheless, saving truth by itself was insufficient to move a self-centered humanity to return to their maker through repentance and amendment of life. Have you ever experienced that realization? Just because you know you're wrong 
doesn't mean you A, want to admit it, let about, let alone do something about it. The church's mission was to proclaim the unchanging message of the gospel to each generation in ways that would move the hearts of the hearers to embrace it. Here is the purpose of Cramner's liturgical revision. And it doesn't begin in the Reformation. It begins in medieval English spirituality. The mystical and mixed life writings of Richard Rohl and Walter Hilton trained devout early Tudor Christians to embrace affective piety as the hallmark of true faith. Now, you don't have a text in front of you, so please let me be clear that I'm saying affective, not effective. I'm saying something to do with the affections, with moving those things within us that deeply move us, the things that matter most, the things that we cling to and are committed to. Moving those, well... Have you ever heard of this phrase, with the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies? <laughs> An effective piety is all about moving the heart. And these medieval writers said that that was the hallmark of true Christianity. It wasn't just that you should go to Mass and go through the rituals. What you heard what you saw, what you said, needed to sink to the deepness of your heart. Because then it would change you from the inside out. So I will be using the word affective throughout this talk, but that's with an A. Richard Roll, the most popular devotional writer of 15th century England, encouraged his readers to embrace celibacy and to ruminate on the scripture so they would experience a sensible love for Christ. Now, am I close enough to farming country that you know what ruminate means? When you think of ruminate, what comes, what image comes to your mind? A cow chewing its cud, right? which is exactly the image that Cramner uses in the homily on Scripture to encourage rumination on Scripture. And that is something the English mystics in the 15th century encourage. For Richard Rule, he was a bit of an outlier radical. He believed that you would have a sensible experience of burning love or hearing angelic choirs. He was followed by a man named Walter Hilton, and Hilton was a lawyer. Do we have any lawyers in here? Oh, is it because you call them sinners they don't come? Uh, we don't have time for that wonderful joke. Anyway, um, Hilton also stressed <coughs> the, su <coughs> the supernatural power of the Bible to transform human affections but he was far more practical. Rather than seeing contemplation as the gateway to God-given physical sensations of ecstasy, Hilton encouraged his readers to channel their newly received divine love into striving for moral perfection. That if you love God, 
you will make better choices. You will seek to please him. You will strive to be like him. As a result, unlike Rule, um, he encouraged devout lay people to stay in their current secular spheres of responsibility to better serve their fellow Christians, but to cultivate a rich contemplative life in private to sustain their work in the world as well. Anyone here ever heard of the quiet time? What's the purpose of the quiet time? That people doing secular responsibilities need to take time out and ruminate on God's word so as to be able to equip to fulfill their responsibilities in the world at large. That's the descendant of the mixed life tradition which was being encouraged in 15th century medieval England. Thoroughly embracing this mixed life tradition herself, Lady Margaret Beaufort, the mother of Henry VII, the founder of the Tudor dynasty, she used her position as the king's mother to promote this piety for her English humanist program for the English church. Especially since continental humanism also stressed the power to transform the affections that would lead to moral reformation. Ever heard of a man named Erasmus? What is what for Erasmus is the hallmark of true Christianity? Reading the scriptures so as to be inflamed. You heard that word before, right? To be inflamed with a love for God so that you will weep at your sins and you will strive for moral perfection. So English popular piety is mingled with high-level academic piety to form a particularly strong form of Tudor humanism that's about ruminating on the Bible to have a love for God that will enable you to pursue godliness. Now, as a Tudor humanist, Cramner was committed to using the liturgy to move the affections of the English people through scripture. Because this is the Church of the Advent, I'm sure you're thoroughly familiar with Cramner's essay on Cramner's preface to the Book of Common Prayer. Well, um, in it, which you'll find in your prayer books, he says that the ancient fathers originally devised divine service so that the people, by daily hearing of Holy Scripture read in church, should be, guess what? Inflamed with the love of God's true religion. Cramner reinforced the necessity of godly affections for true worship in the opening collect of purity in the service of Holy Communion. What's it say? Cleanse the hearts, cleanse the thoughts of our minds. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And for Cramner, the Holy Spirit doesn't come through a holy priesthood. It comes through a holy book, through God's word. Not to be terribly vulgar, but how would you know if I had bad breath? With my words go my breath, correct? And with God's word goes God's breath. 
So as God's word is proclaimed, his spirit goes forth. It cleanses the thoughts of our hearts so that we may worthily magnify thy holy name. Is that how it goes? No, I just skipped something. What must we have before we can worthily magnify thy holy name? Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. You know, when I was growing up, they used to say about Episcopalians, many were cold, but few were frozen. (laughs) And actually, there was some... um, uh, But it's not true of our liturgy. Episcopalianism, Anglicanism, is a head and heart together uh, expression of the Christian faith. And what runs like a red thread throughout the Book of Common Prayer? Constant references to heart, right? By the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. When Do y'all recite the Ten Commandments? When you recite the Ten Commandments, what do you say after each petition? Lord, have mercy and incline our hearts to keep this law. Now, Martin Luther said that because of human self-focus, self-centeredness, one might even want to be as harsh to say selfishness, our hearts are curved inward on themselves. And if we love ourselves more than anything else in the world, we are not going to keep God's law. What's the only way we're going to keep God's law? If we love God more than sin and self. And therefore, what must we ask God to do? Incline our hearts to move it up from ourselves towards God. And notice it's not saying, Lord, because of your law, we incline our hearts. Is that what it says? It says, Lord, have mercy. Because we are fail, we are frail and are filled with foibles. But you are faithful to incline our hearts and draw us to yourself. But the heart language doesn't stop there, does it? What kind of repentance do we have to have? Hearty repentance and true faith, right? And then at the, at, when we make the transition from the ministry of the word to uh, God's holy table, what does the priest say? Lift up your minds. Lift up your hearts. And how does the whole service conclude? The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your minds. Is that what it says? Keep your hearts and minds. Remember, Anglicanism is about head and heart together. Okay. So, Cramner takes that Tudor humanism emphasis on the affections and he puts it throughout the liturgy. But Cramner was not just a Tudor humanist. He was also a first-generation Protestant 
clearly committed to the defining doctrine of justification by faith. But for him, these two were not mutually exclusive. Indeed, for Cramner, they were very much intertwined since he became convinced that the only way Christians could have their hearts inflamed with the love for God was first knowing God loved them enough to assure them of the free gift of salvation. Writing to Henry VIII in 1538, Cramner helpfully summed up the connection between Protestant saving faith and the medieval emphasis on a loved-filled human heart. Quote, But if the profession of our faith of the remission of our sins enters within us into the deepness of our hearts, then it must needs kindle a warm fire of love into our hearts towards God and towards all other for the love of God, a fervent mind to seek and procure God's honor, will, and pleasure in all things, a good will and mind to help every man to do good unto them, so far as our might, wisdom, learning, counsel, health, strength, and all other gifts which we have received of God will extend. In short, a firm intent and purpose to do all that is good and leave all that is evil. Now, there are distinct parts of this that are clearly rooted in English medieval spirituality. What kind of love? A warm fire of love, that deep, effective piety. And what will that warm fire do, as Walter Hilton encouraged? Moral reformation, that you will make good choices, that you will see God. But how is that possible? The medievals said if you meditated on your duties, that would inspire you to keep them. Does that work? Cramner says that burning love comes from what? The recognition that our sins have been forgiven, that we have been freely reconciled to God. What does scripture say? We love because he first loves us. So for Cramner, it's not meditating on just any part of the Bible that will birth this burning love. It's a meditating on the power of the gospel, the free gift, justification by faith. That's why Cramner believes what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Now, have you ever seen the wonderful picture of Thomas Cramner with his clean-shaven, with the naked lady in the window jam? What does Cramner have in his hands? Not a Bible. It's a part of a Bible. Paul's epistles. He, if you look at the portrait, it's like we've interrupted him. He looks up from what's in his hands. And he's saying, I want all history to know that the most characteristic act in my life is to be meditating on justification by faith. Paul's teaching about how free salvation is made possible by the sacrifice of Christ. But <clears throat> Cramner adds a second Protestant twist to this medieval spirituality. He does not believe 
in what many in the Episcopal Church today take for granted. This notion of apostolic succession as an unbroken holy human pipeline that Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the apostles, the Holy Spirit, the apostles laid hands and gave it to the bishops, the bishops gave it to their successors, and then when they ordain a priest, God does a miracle to their soul, so it becomes a PowerPoint, and when a priest does a sacrament, the Holy Spirit goes through the priest and the elements so that the people can get the Holy Spirit. Cramner has no time for that. He believes with God's word God's go, goes God's spirit. And that therefore, true apostolic succession is the succession of apostolic teaching. One of the distinctive things about the Advent that I dearly love, and I'm so glad that y'all cultivate, is a notion that authority is not merely holding the office of a successor to the apostles, but proclaiming the same message as the apostles. Sandy Miller said it best. We in the church, every message has a packaging, right? We in the Church of England keep the packaging and change the message. <laughs> What real liturgical revision is in the eyes of Thomas Cramner is keeping the message and changing the packaging. In Cramner's view, apostolic teaching was the Holy Scriptures alone. You've heard of Sola Scriptura. For him, the church had no authority to add or subtract from its saving message. In Cramner's theological notebooks, he wrote, is not the church a creature, i.e. a human institution? Is not the gospel the voice of God? Why should one therefore believe a creature rather than the creator? The Bible alone was to be trusted in matters of salvation. Equally important, scripture was the primary source of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in his notebooks, Cramner attributes conversion and spiritual growth to, quote, the power of the word. And he cites in his notebooks not only Paul, but Origen and Augustine as all agreeing that the supernatural power of the word is what births and sustains the Christian life. Therefore, the Christian community was the product of proclaiming the biblical message, not the other way around. Think about it. It's important. Is the Bible the product of the church? Well, if it is, why can't the church change the Bible? But if the church is a product of the Bible's message, then authenticity means continuing to preach the biblical message to create, sustain, and grow the church. And think about it. If liturgical revision is proclaiming the mission of the church for the people of our day, what must be at the very heart of that? If you want to create and grow the church, you must proclaim the saving message. You may, 
Therefore, for Cramner, word and sacrament are two sides of the same coin. You may have heard, we hear that phrase all the time in Episcopalianism, Anglicanism, right? Word and sacrament. But what people usually mean sacrament, the holy priesthood, the unbroken chain of pipeline, we get the, we get the Holy Spirit from the sacraments, and then we also have the word too. Cramner, two sides of the same coin. What gives power to a sacrament? The words of Jesus' institution of that sacrament said in the administration of it. That's where the supernatural power comes. Not from priests. I mean, I really think the world of, of Dean Harper, but I hate to say, tell you, no matter what, what the bishop did laying on hands, he didn't make you a holy pipeline. <laughs> Which I think your wife would agree. <laughs> Therefore, you often hear in fancy liturgical circles that the Anglicanism follows the principle of lex orandi, lex credendi. The law that that praying shapes believing. That the church's theology comes from its prayer book, which also means, what, it, what doesn't it come from then? The Bible. Because who writes the prayer book? Us. And therefore, if we want to change the theology of the church, we simply write a new prayer book, right? Cramner believes... Forgive me for being pedantic, but there, I'm sure there are some classicists out there who would love to hear it said in Latin. Lex predicandi, lex orandi, lex credendi. Preaching and praying shape believing. And that's why the first liturgical change of Cranmer under Edward VI is not a new prayer book, but required biblical sermons proclaiming the gospel of grace. Every Sunday, in order, these 12 sermons over and over during the entire time of his reign so that biblical truth would sink from the mind to the hearts of the people. And what do these homilies say? Surprise, surprise, that salvation is a free gift and that that free gift will inflame a love for God in your hearts. And when you have a love for God, guess what you're going to do? You're going to seek to follow him, to obey his commandments, to be more like him. Now, have you noticed something really irritating about the Christian life? That when you've wrestled and struggled and are trying to make spiritual progress and an issue that has plagued you, whether it's fear or bitterness or unforgiveness, and God gives you grace and he, you, you get release from it and you, you're getting thinking how holy you are, how much better you, you know, how much progress you're making, then he like, takes your eyes off the foothills that you've been dealing with and shows you the mountains in the background that in his mercy he did not show you lest he completely overwhelm you and break your heart. We make progress in the Christian life, but that doesn't mean we become holy. Holiness is ever-increasing dependence on the good news 
that God loves the unworthy. And even as we grow in wholeness, we become more aware. It's the harsh truth, folks, isn't it? That you have to become more like God to know how unlike God you are. And so the closer you grow to him, the more you get grateful for grace because you realize how much more he needs to change. And isn't it good news that he will not leave us like this? That in the age to come, he will complete what we can never complete? And that we will one day love him as faithfully and consistently as he loves us? And not because of our willpower, which is actually his work in us, not because of our righteousness or moral superiority to our brothers and sisters, but because of the faithfulness of his love and promise that his love will allure us and make us like him. And that's what Cramner puts in his prayer books. You know, he institutes a liturgy that has a lectionary where the Bible is read through in a year. The Psalms are read through <clears throat> in a month, and the New Testament is read through three times. But it's not just a new lectionary in the new prayer books Cranmer puts in there. The whole warp and weave of the text is so filled with biblical allusions that it's very difficult to try to quantify them. I mean, that very phrase, where does Cramner get the peace of God that passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds? Where is that from? Philippians 4.8. It says hearts and minds. And so does our liturgy. But even more than that, have you ever noticed that right one is a mouthful? Cramner seems never to use one word when at least two and sometimes three will do, right? Erred and strayed, devices and desires, acknowledge and bewail, sins and wickedness, wrath and indignation, rehearsal and repent, heartily sorry, succor, help and comfort, all those that be in danger, necessity and tribulation. And then my, my favorite, a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction. He's not showing off his Renaissance eloquence. He's putting so many words in your mouth that you have to slow down and give you an opportunity to ruminate on the biblical truths these words convey. And even more importantly, giving the Holy Spirit time to write those truths on your heart. In fact, Cramner has designed his liturgy to make it possible for all English people, not just those in monasteries, to daily ruminate on Scripture. He creates two Scripture services. Can anyone guess what they're called? Morning and evening prayer. He expected everyone in the village to begin their workday and end their workday 
by ruminating on Scripture to make it part of the normal rhythm of daily English life. And then Cramner makes changes to Holy Communion. In 1549, he says, The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is broken for thee, preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. In 1552, he says, Take and eat this. And the, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed upon him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. He wants it clear that there's a spiritual presence that affects us deep within that will give us what we need for the Christian life. And what is the one most important virtue, characteristic? Gratitude, right? Out of gratitude comes love. Out of love comes repentance. Out of repentance comes good works. Out of good works comes a better society. But gratitude for the free gift of salvation, gratitude for the promises that he will not leave us alone, but will be continuing to work in us. Gratitude that even though he works in us, it is a drop in the bucket, and yet he still loves us and is determined to make good out of us. He then takes the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and he shifts it. Not before the uh, uh, blessing, of the, the, before the Eucharistic prayer, but afterwards. Why? It's not as if we offer something that God then accepts and blesses. Holy Communion is open heart surgery, where we go in and say to God, I'm a mess. There is no health in me. Ever heard that phrase? Please, by the power of your word, come in and refresh. Cleanse the thoughts of my heart. Inspire a new, fresh, stronger love. Enable me to worthily magnify your name with my praise and with my life. And therefore, the praise of thanksgiving, the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving follows. But then he does something that's even more wonderful than that. He changes the comfortable words and puts them right before the priest says, lift up your heart. Why do you suppose he does that? Well, anyone ever heard of the four spiritual laws? Well, there's four Anglican gospel promises. The comfortable words is the gospel according to what Thomas Cramner understands. And if we're going to have our hearts, if we're going to be able to lift our hearts up, what are we going to need? We're going to need to hear the gospel so that our hearts will be inclined, will be lifted up towards God. And what do the comfortable words say? Let's just briefly think about them. Come unto me, all ye that travail or heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Does he mention sin, hell, law, judgment? What's he talk about? 
human need. Human longing for rescue. He begins where people are. He puts his finger on their spiritual restlessness. And he gets their attention. What's the next comfortable word? For God so loved the world that all who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Does he mention sin? Does he mention hell, law, any of that? What's it, what does John 3.16 talk about? Divine longing to rescue. The whole biblical story is between those two pillars. Humanity longing for release, but even not knowing where to find it. Our creator longing to restore us to himself and in him to our true selves. But how does salvation work? Well, we began with the human perspective. What's the third comfortable word? You know, no matter how many times I do it, I always forget the third comfortable word. First Timothy 1.15. This is a true saying worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Ah, the S word has finally been used. It's not as if Thomas Cramer is afraid to talk about hell, law, sin, and judgment. He just doesn't begin it to crush a smoking flax. But now he, we know that that spiritual anxiety, that restlessness, that longing to be rescued is rooted in our sin that has captured us and cut us off from God. And because it's captured us, we cannot free ourselves. We need a Savior to come. And that is Christ Jesus. And salvation for our perspective is Christ coming and on the cross saying it is finished. That his sacrifice makes it possible for us to be reunited with God. But what does salvation look like from God's perspective? Human, divine, human. What's the last comfortable word? If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is a propitiation for our sins. Two key concepts. What is Jesus? In the medieval church over the chancel arch, there's Jesus as the Lord of doom, the judge that will exact from you to the last farthing the punishment due your sins. And that's not me as a an antagonistic low church Protestant. That's Eamon Duffy who loves the medieval church saying that that's exactly the message that that Lord of doom sent. And in Anglicanism, they whitewash that and they proclaim that Jesus comes as your defense lawyer, not your judge. But what does it cost him to come as your defense lawyer? That he is the perfect offering for our sins. What a radical idea that the almighty immortal dies so that Mortals might become immortal. It's confidence in that message and those words right before we hear, lift up your hearts, that Cramner believes 
that when the priest says it, we will have been divinely allured by the gospel to be able to respond and to ascend by faith into the heavenly banquet in the presence of Jesus and to be fed spiritually by him at the table and therefore at the end of the service to give him praise and thanksgiving. Well, we see the apex of Cramner's liturgical revision program, divine gracious love, constantly communicated by the Holy Spirit in the regular repetitions of Scripture's promises through word and sacrament, inspires grateful human love, gently drawing believers towards God, their fellow human beings, and in a pursuit of lifelong godliness. That is our missional DNA as Anglicans. May God give us grace to long proclaim it through our liturgy, through our preaching, and because of those two, through our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.